Welcome back to, this is, I guess, week five in our uh, equipping class. Yeah, week five of six. We've got one more after this one. Um, this is going to be lesson four, part B, because we didn't, get, uh, we didn't get all the way through our lessons. So this will be part two of what we started two weeks ago, before Easter. So if that's not confusing enough, we're just going to keep going. Um, if you don't have a handout, Rich and Christy are making more. It's the same handout that you had from two weeks ago. So just going to try to finish that up tonight, Lord willing. All right, great. <clears throat> well, let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump, into, um, we'll jump into our series. Father, we're thankful uh, this morning, or this evening, actually, um, for your mercy. We're thankful that you've designed your body in a way to... Um, to use each one of us. Lord, none of us are worthy. Uh, none of us are competent in ourselves to um, to help each other grow or to be discerning, um, but you give us insight. You help us. And this is your commission. And so we look to you even tonight as we're seeking to understand it and, and get better at it and be more faithful in it. And um, we're confident, we're, we're joyful because we know this will succeed. And Lord, I just depend on you tonight uh, to carry us through, to open our eyes, to help us see, uh, help us become more effective. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this class is the class on discipling. I trust most of you know that. I've asked this every time, so why not keep the train going? Is this anybody's first time to the class? Okay, one, one, only one person. Great, all right. That we're shortening the window. Um, when no one raises their hand, I won't review every lesson. Okay, yeah, wow. You guys are just either, I'm not funny, or you guys are just... <laughs> probably first, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so week one, where do we start? Vision of discipleship, remember? Before we get into anything, we want to be asking the question, how does the Bible frame this up? What's our big picture vision, the 50,000-foot view and I gave you really three, three key texts so you can hang, hang this vision on. There's more there. The first was, wow, we're really going to review. Matthew 28, there we go. It was so easy that you just didn't want to say it, right? So discipleship is our central mission. That's Matthew 28. It teaches us more than that, but that's kind of the main idea. Discipleship is key to the, to the church, key to the mission, uh, so it needs to be a central focus of our lives. Um, we also learned, second in this vision, that it's carried out through the local church. Discipleship is um, not just on an island somewhere in a parachurch organization, although you can help people follow Christ in those, but it's intended, God designed it, to be carried out through the local church. And what tells us that? The book of Acts, as well as many other places, but the book of Acts is what we looked at. And then third, it involves not just the pastors, but it involves every single one of us. We're all gifted. If you've been saved, you've been gifted, and you've been gifted for the task to help the body mature, to help people come to faith in Christ, and to grow in Christ. And so every single one of us, nobody's exempted from this, uh, from this endeavor. So that was the vision for discipleship, and as that sinks down deep, we're going to be motivated to do the hard work of discipling, um, the joyful, but the hard work. So that was week one, and then the rest of our weeks have been focused on the practices of discipleship. So what does this look like? 
What, what are some marks of a faithful discipler, you could say? So week two, we looked at modeling. So when it comes to influencing other people for Christ and to be obedient to Christ, we have to start at home. We have to start in our own hearts. Why is that? We have to take the log out of our own eye. We have to take the log out of our own eye, but why? What does the rest of that verse say? Yes, so you can see clearly. So the log inhibits your vision. So if there's patterns of unrepentant sin in your life that you're unwilling to deal with, you're not dealing with your sin the right way, you're not going to be able to see to be able to help somebody else deal with that, that sin because it's, it's clogging up your eye. <clears throat> so we have to start at home. So, but do you have to be fully mature before you um, can help anybody else grow? Not a true question. No, okay. No, you don't, even though that's often what we think, isn't it? The whole arrive thing, I have to arrive before I can weigh in. So, you don't have to be fully mature. Um, it's not perfection, but it's, it's, it's progress. We want, to, we want to be progressing in the faith and calling others to follow our progress as we follow Christ. So, if we're not supposed to be perfect then, what are some good targets that we should have in our lives? What are some good kind of practices that will help us be confident as we disciple other people that we can actually see more clearly what's that growing Growing, yeah and how does that happen where does it start okay great that's great in the abstract recognizing our sin so it starts with how we handle our sin right this is going to come out tonight how we're helping others handle their sin, right? So it starts with how we handle our sin. So again, back to the log in the eye. We have to be log removers, which means we have to be identifying sin, being able to understand what lies we've believed and what truths we can combat that with to be able to grow in in Christ's likeness. Yeah. So handling our sin biblically, we'll look at that again tonight. Renewing our own minds with truth. We talked about that. And that process for growth, how do we grow? And then we also talked about understanding suffering and the role that suffering plays in the life of a believer, how God uses that to mature us for his purposes. So if we have those, and we just kind of, we, we have those categories in our minds and we're, and we're trying to practice that, we won't be perfect in those, but that'll, that'll give us a good foundation, obviously understanding the role of the church in this whole process. So that was week two, uh, modeling. So then kind of begs the question, well, okay, so I'm getting after it in my own life, trying to follow Jesus, trying to be humble, trying to be repenting, trusting Christ, but how do I start these relationships? Does pastor pair me up? That can happen. Um, we can pair you guys up, or even better, if you take the initiative yourself. We called that befriending, and that was week three. It's taking the initiative and moving toward others. And why do we do that? There's a lot of risk involved in that. What if you get rejected? What if you get hurt? Well, it's not easy. It costs you more time. Why do you move toward other people? Why do you take initiative? It's commanded. It's commanded, yep. Yeah. It's, it's Christ's example. It's Christ's example? How so? Like he, he came to us first, so we got to live that out. Amen. All of our discipling and our initiating of relationships flows out of that truth. Um, it's, and that has to be deep. We have to understand that Christ initiated a relationship with us. He, when, when we were dead, when we were his enemies... When we crucified him, um, he came to us 
condescended to us, initiated. And so if he were worried about being hurt, he would have not come. So we, we, can't, we can't make that excuse because we will be hurt in these kinds of things, and that's okay. So let's just kind of press pause right here. How has that gone? Have you, um, have you pushed yourself out of your comfort zone in any ways as a, res- as a result of these um, messages or just even being kind of with this on our minds afresh? Feel free to share. Let's take a, let's take a minute or two and share. You yeah, have, if you want to. If you don't, I'll just keep talking. <laughs> yeah, Garen. In the Tuesday morning men's group, I've tried to, well, this isn't befriending for like a discipleship, discipleship relationship, but like befriending other members of the church who's not just like college students. Amen. Great. Excellent. Any other examples? You guys are just all really good friends with, with everybody in the church. Yeah, Marilyn? Um, we have an acquaintance for a number of years, and his wife died a few years ago, and he's been out of church. And this week we met him for dinner, and then we encouraged him to come to church, and he came this morning. Yeah. Um, he was kind of scared. Of I think I saw him. Thinking that people wouldn't <laughs> accept him, wondering where he'd been. But then he asked about Sunday school. So anyway, he had to kind of probe and push a little bit, but yeah. say, I'll save you a seat, but yeah. he responded. So. Yeah, amen. Excellent. Any other examples? Yeah, Mark. I confronted a friend that is in an unhealthy church and that he should be somewhere else. Yeah, good. He's a good friend, so it's intimidating. Words fumbled now. <laughs> that's how it always is yeah it's i don't know of any any confrontation that goes well unless you're rich brown <laughs> a dude can confront you and you feel better about it <laughs> yeah good well um i i we had a, a lunch today as you guys probably saw in um I had a young man come up to me afterwards, and, or during it, actually, and I, you know, he was kind of walking by, and I didn't recognize him, so I was like, hey, what's your name? And uh, we, we just chatted, and he was like, you are like the 10th person that said that to me today, um, in, you know, kind of around lunchtime. He was kind of floored by that. He said he'd been church hopping and um, that nobody had, nobody had reached out to him in any of the churches that he'd been to. Sad, sad. Isn't that sad? So... Um, but again, it's, it's got to get past, you know, he was like, he's like, he literally said this. He's like, I don't know what you're doing here, but that's, it's really cool, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just a great moment because I, I got to tell him exactly what I just told you guys, that the convictions have to run deep. Christ befriended us. It's not a gimmick. This is not something we just turn on on Sundays. This is how we live our lives because of Christ's love for us. Um, and we, we trust him and we want to mimic him and, and resemble him. So, Good, that was week three. Befriending, trust that uh, you're continuing to take steps. Again, just a reminder, this, this is going to uh, be very fruitless and, and profitless if we're, if we're not acting on, on what, we're, what we're learning here. That's the whole goal of these, these, uh, these teachings. All right, so that, that led us to week four. Uh, and we looked at uh, the centrality of teaching in the life of discipleship. So as we're trying to disciple people, 
Teaching is going to play just a, a core role. Before we're saved, let's just kind of rethink this. I know it's been a couple weeks. Before we were saved, we were completely deceived. Romans 1, right? We had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we had worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So that was the state of all humanity. We were truth suppressors. And so that means then that every single person on the planet needs truth to come to them. It's not going to originate from them. Is that fair? We need truth to come to us from the outside. We need truth to come to us from God, from God himself, because we won't generate it from within. So we need preaching, obviously evangelism. We need the truth. We need to hear the truth. But once we have believed, once God has opened our eyes to the truth, then we have a new capacity to believe the truth that was not there before. So the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. He grants faith. We exercise it ourselves. And that capacity... It's what I just said. It's, it's faith. And that wasn't there before. So that means that for a Christian, uh, change is possible. Um, it, is, it is very exciting because now we have this new capacity to trust Jesus when we didn't before. But we obviously have that old edemic nature that's still lurking around. Remember that from Ephesians 4? The old man or the old woman that's corrupt through the desires of deceit. And we're told to put him or her off. So that means, as Christians, we're often still deceived. We have this old edemic nature still hanging around, um, attempting to deceive us and often deceiving us. And what's the evidence that we are often deceived? We sin, right? Our sin tells on us that we fall in prey to that, to that deception. So then, just kinda, I was working, working my way here, okay? The best way that we can help each other in the church is to, like Paul says, speak the truth to one another, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.25. So if you know the truth, I know the truth, but we're often deceived, and we need truth. When we're deceived, we need truth to come to us from the outside. Then we, each other, we need to, we need to be um, reverberating truth within the church. Maybe that would be a good way to put it. And this happens... Corporately, right, through the teaching of the word, like what I'm doing right now, happens corporately, but it happens individually within the membership. And we learned that last week that for most of us, this teaching is going to happen informally. It's going to happen in a dialogue that goes back and forth. It happens slowly as you patiently help others to understand the lies that they believed. And it'll look like helping them to embrace the truth in a particular area and learn to live by that truth now. Or like I'm saying it in your subheading, it's becoming a discipler who discerns lies and reveals truth. That's the goal. All right, so we looked at six encouragements last time, or we began looking at six encouragements. And it started with uh, encouragement number one, don't be afraid to probe. So what, what did that mean? You tell me. Okay, yep. To ask questions, and particularly, what kind of questions? Yep, questions about their growth, yep. Trying to draw them out, kind of basically that first point was kind of redundant from the second point, but the idea was we're in friendships with one another, we're starting to get into relationships, we kind of need to take that next step to begin to probe into the life of someone else, right? 
um, and see how, how are things going? How is your walk with Christ? What areas of your life um, are you struggling with? And so don't be afraid to, to kind of go there. That was, that was point number one. Encouragement number one. Encouragement number two was once something is out in the open, you know, in a friendship, you know, they say, wow, I'm really struggling with X. Then if you have the opportunity or maybe set up another time to seek to genuinely understand that, that problem that your friend has. So what does that look like? Or let's think, why is that important? Let's start there. Why is it important to slow down and try to understand somebody before we start throwing Bible verses at them? Because we don't want to be Job's friends. Okay, don't want to be Job's friends. And what was bad about Job's friends? They didn't help him. <laughs> they didn't help him. They didn't take time Target. to listen. Okay, yeah, they didn't take time to listen. They're, that's a probably complex question. What's wrong with Job's friends? But um, <laughs> it's in their theology and how they were applying it and all those kinds of things. But it's a good example. Um, yeah, this, the general principle in Scripture is you're a fool if you give an answer before you understand what the issues are, right? Um, so they had, they had a preconceived idea of what was wrong. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to say it. Yep. So we want to seek to genuinely understand before we start trying to give solutions to problems, and that means we need to listen, right? Slow down enough to really give your, your friends some time to talk, and don't just jump on it. Listen well. Ask good questions. We looked at those questions. We won't review all those. Look, you know, asking good questions. And then I just like to, as a general principle, as I'm in a conversation with somebody who is just really opening up, I want to make sure to try to clarify if there's any confusion in my mind you know, when I'm talking with them. So just asking follow-up questions there. And as I was thinking back through this in preparing for today, I, I want to make this point before we move forward. Asking questions doesn't stop. So I don't want to give the impression like there's a nice, neat system that you just follow, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then you're gonna, somebody's going to be like Christ. Um, you, you're asking, I mean, you're con- we're constantly learning about each other. We're constantly le- uh, getting more information. So the questions really continue through this entire process. Um, so I don't want to give the impression that you kind of finish point number two, and then now you're, now you're in didactic mode uh, from here on out. All right, so... Really, I want to finish today by talking about points three through six and then maybe trying to apply it with some, some case studies here. So these will go a lot faster than our, our, first, our first couple here. So once you're understanding somebody's problem and kind of what's going on, you're kind of getting to some maybe even some ideas of maybe what their root issues might be, even if they aren't, the next step that you want to do is you want to help them to respond biblically to their sin and to its guilt. That's your third encouragement. You want to help them respond biblically to their sin and the guilt that they, that they feel, the guilt that they've incurred as a result. So why do you think we want to start here? Yeah. With. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You've got to be aware of their sin. 
what their sin is. Yeah, they're, until they are ready to confess their sin as God has described it in the Scripture, they won't they won't be able to change. Um, that is sort of the fundamental kind of front door issue. So, and it relates to us because we are not going to have the discernment to be able to hear that and hear people responding wrongly to their sin if we're not responding rightly to our sin. Does that make sense? So if we're, you know, if we're doing some of these things, I listed some of these things out here. Um, so how do, how do we do this? Well, let me, let me back up just one second. We just encourage you here to, again, you're going to hear me say this probably throughout this whole process, is just be patient. Be patient with people and seek to understand how they're thinking about their problem. How do they view it? Who is responsible for it? Do they agree with Scripture's assessments of, of, their, of their issues? So you help them respond biblically. You see point A here by identifying their temptations to deny. We want to help people. We want to listen well and then help people, if they're doing this, to recognize the fact that they're actually subtly denying or evading responsibility for their sin. So what does that look like? You know, we talked about this previously. Ignoring. People can ignore their sin. So I'm going to give you some examples as we go along here. So for the, for the guy or the young lady that's, that's looking at pornography, let's just take that one, for the lust. Ignoring it would just like they, they look at porn and they immediately move to something else. So I want to know, you know, if that's a, if that's a struggle, okay, so what are you doing after you sin? So I just close my phone and I go do the next thing. That's a wrong response to their sin, right? That's a, it's a, it, they're ignoring it. So we, that's, again, we've got to start there. Okay, ignoring sin is, an, is a way that we deny it. Minimizing it, remember? Minimizing it's another way we deny it. Just think about anxiety. You know, just so much of our anxiousness just passes as we just say it's not that big a deal. Everybody does this. These circumstances are anxiety-inducing. It's maybe another form of blame shifting, but it's just normal. This is normal. This is the way. This is the way life works. It's not that big a deal. It's not hurting anybody. I'm just. I'm just fretting. I'm a fretter. Everybody's anxious. So that's again. You start talking to somebody about their their fear, and they start saying things like that. Then you know immediately they have begun to minimize their sin, which is again, it's it's this is not the this is not the way that God would have them go. Uh, blame shifting is another example of this. Let's take anger. You know, if he would have just taken out the trash, like I said, he wouldn't have gotten this tongue lashing. Okay, well, what are you saying? You're saying my husband or my son or child, daughter, whatever, they are responsible for my anger. If they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have gotten angry. That's blame shifting. You chose to get angry at your kid, not taking out the trash. So again, blame shifting is a way that we, we deny. And so when people are, when you hear that, when people are talking that way, you know, he just made me so mad. It's like, maybe you don't address it in the moment because maybe they're spilling, because they're angry. But you note that in your mind. Okay, right? That's how they're thinking about their anger. And that's how they're justifying their anger. So again, 
Lost example. You know, my covenant, my covenant eye software glitched, and that's why I did it. Covenant eyes, you know, went away. It's like, oh, so it's your covenant eyes fault that you looked at pornography. So that's that's a blame shift. That's what just happened there. Again, relabeling, you know, relabeling happens as well. You know, I just I just need to work on time management. All right. Are you lazy? Because <laughs> that's what my heart is. Uh, when I need to work on time management, or I fear man and I overcommit, okay, let's not call it time management. Let's call it what it really is, right? Um, so again, you're not just going to go for the jugular, but you know, again, I, I, I'm using lust and pornography a lot, but it's just a hormonal issue, you know, uh, biological. That's just again, it's not to say there's not biology at work there, but you can't blame your sin on your biology. So that's ultimately blaming God, right? Um, so relabeling is another way that we, that we deny. But my point in listing these out is just we're full of these kinds of forays that are all away from the right way. And so in conversation, as you're, as you're asking questions, you want to listen for how they're, they're, they're tempted to or they're actively denying their sin. And at some point when I, when I hear it, that's kind of when you have, to, you have to cross that threshold. So let's say someone comes to me and they say they're struggling with social anxiety when they come to church. Come to church, don't like to come to church because it's hard for me, I struggle with social anxiety. So after listening, trying to unpack that, you know, doing our, our, our points one and two, you know, after asking questions, I might say something like, hey, it sounds like you think that if you just get out of that situation, that you'll stop being anxious. Do you think that you're anxious because of that situation? You know, at the church, like going to church, being around big groups of people. And if they say, yeah, you know, then I may say something like, well, do you realize that you're subtly blaming the church? This large group of people, you're blaming them for your anxiety? That's probably a new thought. That's probably definitely a new thought for, for them in that moment, that I'm blaming the church. Okay, circumstances can tempt us, I might say, but they can't cause our sin. We sin because we choose to voluntarily. That's what the scriptures teach. And in this case, you're choosing to respond to this large group of people with fear. So that's just an example of how that might sound in an interaction. You know, as I'm talking with somebody, just kind of like draw them out. Okay, wow, I'm hearing you say this. Is this right? Yes, this is, this is what I think. Okay, well, this is actually what's going on. I'm reinterpreting for them what they're saying in biblical terms. And so you might be thinking this, well, gosh, how do I grow my discernment, you know, on these things? Like, how do you just hear that when somebody's talking? Well, the, the main way you grow is by being ruthless yourself, with, with yourself, um, and not letting yourself blame shift and do that with your own sin patterns. So that's, don't give yourself and out on any sin pattern in your life. You've got to upend all your own justifications, all your own excuses for sin. You have to learn your own heart and what it wants to do, how, to, how it wants to kind of get out from under the guilt and the weight of sin and blame it somewhere else, and we do it every day. So you get plenty of opportunities to, um, to navigate that. And, and the... But the beauty of that is, is as you're ruthless, as you put that to death in your own heart, 
you're going to be growing by leaps and bounds in terms of insights with other people because that's exactly what your heart does. You hear them say what your heart says. So that's a huge encouragement. All right? And when it comes to uh, helping others see it, be patient. Normally people push back pretty hard on me in, in some of these scenarios, and that's okay. You've just got to be patient because this is usually the first line of deception that someone faces. And it can take a little bit to come around to the truth on this. Just think about how you change, right? Are you ever defensive when someone presses in on you? You know, so if somebody's defensive on you, don't just immediately write them off. Think they're an unbeliever, you know. Just give them some time. <laughs> Let them think about it. Be patient, but be persistent. And oftentimes what I've found is that more study is needed in order to get someone to agree with God's assessment on their sin. I always think, I want to try to convince them with Scripture, all right? And that leads to the next way that you can help them respond biblically, and that's by making sure that they understand that sin comes from their heart. So don't just say it. Show them. And it's very helpful. Let's take that social anxiety example or the lust example. Okay, Jesus says this comes from your heart. This isn't what I, this isn't what Clay thinks. This is what Christ says. So look at Mark 7.21. This is familiar territory, but we'll just turn back here. Jesus says in verse 20, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, and then he underscores it, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So why the list? Probably because he's trying to make a point. Is it sin? It comes from within. It comes from your heart. Which means you're responsible for it. Circumstances, again, may tempt you to sin. It may pour gas on the fire, but it didn't start the fire. It might cause it to flame higher, bigger, burn brighter. But the flames are already there, and the flames are coming from the fire burning in your heart, the sin in your heart. And so we have to gently and graciously help people square with this. Because what seems right to them, let's take the anger example. What seems right to them is that I was sitting here not angry. They came in, called me a nincompoop. (laughs) Happens in our house sometimes little ones for real it's very cute to see Eleanor say Ningapoo <laughs> and I reacted you know I, I you made me angry because you called me that name right that's what seems right to us and Proverbs warns us about what seems right to us doesn't it where does that lead to death, to death Proverbs says So, okay, that might seem right to you, that conversation would go, but this says that anger comes from within. Murder 
those kinds of things, evil thoughts, that all comes from within you. So that means you're responsible for it. So let's, oftentimes what I'll do, again, just trying to help you think about how to make the argument with people who are kind of like not quite convinced yet. Um, it, you can foil them with Jesus, right? So his heart was unlike our hearts. It didn't have sin in it. So when the circumstances pressed him, he endured all of our same circumstances. So if circumstances are able to cause sin, it would have caused Jesus to sin. But the circumstances pressed in on Jesus' heart, and what popped out? Righteousness, Scripture, truth, obedience. And the key example to that is in the garden. That's, that's the, the greatest pressure was exerted on our Lord in the garden. And what came out was prayer, a yieldedness to God, and then pristine obedience as he trusted his Father. And so you can foil people with, with Christ and kind of what, what how for, foil with Jesus um, in, these, in these sorts of scenarios. And so I might have them, you know, read some articles to ask some good questions that they can answer and be thinking about. Really, it's like there's no magic in just like reading a book. The, par- the purpose in reading a book or reading an article is getting in the scriptures and have the scriptures explained to you to kind of understand some of these things. So maybe pick a pick an article or a or an assignment, uh, some passages to study uh, that would be helpful for them to meditate on and have them write out, okay, what are you learning in each of these passages? So what are some of those passages that might be helpful? What do you think? To help someone convince them, to, to help, to let the Spirit convince someone through the Word of God that they're responsible for their sin. Okay, Psalm 51 is a, is a prayer of confession, yeah. Psalm 32 is another prayer of confession, yep. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, yeah, all of Romans 1 through 3, yeah. James 4, 1 and following, right? The, these, it's anger, all these things come from within you. Your passions are at war within you. Romans 1, especially Romans 1, 22 through about 26 is very helpful. But there's, there's lots of these texts. My point is just you need to know where these are so that you can help people go to them and study them, especially if you're meeting some resistance to them taking responsibility for their sin. All right, so where, this leads to where you want to go in, in letter C here by, by leading them to honest confession. And so they need to understand God's initial solution to sin and that's to just admit it freely, to admit it honestly, as it truly is, to agree with God's own assessment of it and call out to God for mercy alone. That's, that's the solution, the initial solution. I'm saying initial because there's a lot more mind renewal and, and obedience to happen in the future, but it's, it's born out of this faith that looks to Jesus. And we looked at, we looked at John 1.9 many times, but... There's a a really clear, succinct articulation of God's solution in the midst of temptations to deny our sin, right? Don't deny, but confess it, and then there's promises attached to that as well in 1 John 1, 9. And so it's very important that we don't think of confession as some kind of work. Like, I just got to mouth the right words, and everything will be okay. Confession is like, that's when like your, your works don't work. It's when they cease. 
It's when we say, I can't do it. Please be merciful to me. I am in the wrong. I need forgiveness and I do not deserve it. Like it's, it's, the, it's the I'm naked kind of statement. I don't have anything to, to offer to you. It's Luke 18, 13, where the tax collector says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't even look up. He's beating his breast, standing far off. All he can do, because he's so sinful, is ask God to just please be merciful. I can't do it. I need forgiveness. It's David in Psalm 51. And you hear the desperation in Psalm 51 in the opening of that psalm. And it's to look only to God alone for a solution. It's not to try to manufacture one himself. And so that's, that's huge that we think of confession in that way. Like, Don't overcomplicate it. It's, it's, the end of, it's coming to the end of yourself and looking to God for mercy alone. And see, why, why this is so important is because oftentimes when people feel the weight of their sin, maybe they've, they've become convinced from like a Mark 7 or other places that, okay, I am actually to blame for my sin. I used to, I used to rationalize it, justify it, minimize it, but I can't do that anymore. I'm to blame. When people feel the weight of this and they realize they can't blame it on anything else, their hearts will mouth a confession but actually will rest in their own offering of atonement. They might say some words and then they feel better about themselves by, by thinking they can pacify God in some way with their actions after they confess. And we call this self-atonement. And we have to be on the lookout for it as disciples. What does this mean? Okay, well, well that's, that's what we want to do. We want to identify their temptation to self-atone. That's letter D. If they're doing that, we want to be able to hear that. So what does this sound like? And again, you, it gets, it's, it's, you have to skillfully draw this out. There's no other way to do this than just by kind of drawing this out. Like, what, what are you saying to yourself after you sinned? You know, these mental punishments. I'm such a failure. I'm such a wreck. I deserve judgment. I would be better if I never existed. Those kinds of thoughts. And then, it, or, or may it transition into kind of a more effort kind of approach. I'm going to try harder so this never happens again. This is never going to happen again, Lord. You go to kids, I'm never going to get angry again. It's an attempt to feel better about yourself by yourself. So you mouth some confession because you know 1 John 1 9, but what really gives you hope are these things this, this mental punishments. Or this sort of, this sort of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better. And you're not really hoping in Christ. And if people aren't hoping in Christ, they are not going to change. They won't look like Jesus. If they're leaning on anything other than Christ for acceptance with God, for God's full pardon for his full favor, for the fullness of his love, it is a false hope, and it has to go. And so when we've had some time to tease this out, I'm I'm often going to help someone see that it is the height of pride to self-atone. Now, when you say that to somebody who's self-atoning, that rattles them. Why? Because they don't feel like it's proud. They feel like it's humble. 
They think they're being humble by trying to show God that they really mean it or they're, or they're allowing God to cool off before they come to him. But it's actually declaring that Christ's cross is not enough to pardon them. His promises can't really be trusted as fully as he gives them. And that is pride. And so, people must totally abandon themselves to the loving care of Christ and allow Jesus to take full responsibility for them. And that happens as as letter E, as we lead people to entrust themselves to Christ's mercy and to His promises for change. They need to know what Christ promises to them. They need to know that chapter and verse. They need to know what it looks and feels like to entrust themselves to His love in the midst of their sin. Now, if you know us at TBC, we're not saying that they sin in order that grace may abound. By no means. But this is the first step to that kind of hope-filled obedience is by the total abandonment of of self to Christ. So again, I say you need to know texts. So I I listed 1 John 1, 8 all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. That's that's a crucial text to help them depend on Jesus. But here's some other helpful ones. I'm just going to give it to you as, as you go along. Luke 15. Luke 15 is massive. I come back here all the time in my own heart. The chapter starts with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's a messianic banquet. He's sharing it with the riffraff. They're repentant, but they're still tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees do not like it. And then it goes on. Jesus goes on to tell some stories about heaven's joy over the repentant sinner. And then another story about how the prodigal father runs out to meet the son who squandered everything the father gave him. Clothes him, kisses him, brings him in, slaughters a calf. That is how God responds to you and to the people you're discipling when they humble themselves and avail themselves of his mercy. Romans 3.21, we've learned, we looked at that this morning, just threw that in there, making a quick connection to our sermon today. Everyone has sinned, everyone lacks the glory of God. The only requirement for the gospel, the only requirement for Christ's love is to admit it. To stop pretending. Because we are justified, we are declared righteous by His grace as a gift. Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. The faith that confesses, the faith that beats his breast and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. That faith justifies, it's counted as righteousness. These are promises that we live and die by as people who are in process. And you have to help people entrust themselves to Christ with these kinds of texts. And the Bible's full of them. All right, these are not just the only ones. These are just ones that came came, off the front burner that have been helpful for me in the past. And so... Man, that went fast. All right, got to review less. All right, so more practical practical helps here. As I'm kind of coming through this and I'm helping people kind of 
understand what's, what they're, what's happening in their sin and how they're blame shifting and how to confess what this looks like. I w- you don't have to do this, but I usually have people write out a prayer of confession which includes thanksgiving and have them send it to me. You can shred it or whatever. Just don't, you know, don't do it digitally. Give it back to them when you're done so that it doesn't feel like you've got a copy of their written, just whatever. Um, but the reason I do this is because I want to hear them pray. I want to hear where are they going? What are they hoping in? Because where this will lead is thanksgiving. It will lead to joy, rejoicing, praising God, love for God because of his mercy, right? And so I want them to trust God and hear that. I mean, I know you can, you can put things on paper that you don't mean or whatever, but that is usually a very helpful exercise to get people to articulate for themselves these principles with texts so they can go back to it and say, this is what I'm doing whenever I'm trapped in sin, I've sinned, and here's how I handle this. And teaching people to respond rightly to their sin is at least half the battle in sanctification. Because we're prone toward, Satan deceives us and then he keeps deceiving us. He deceives us into sin and he deceives us post-sin. And so we kind of have to work backwards, okay? I tell people all the time, don't sin twice. If you already sinned once, like let's not compound this thing. Um, God has a solution for you. And it's to depend on Him. Knowing that God is for us, that we're reconciled to Him, that Christ is bigger than my sin, that He has me, these are absolutely central for growth. And if you're trying to grow without believing that, it won't happen. It's not the New Testament model. It's not Paul's model. If Paul were sitting here, it's not how he would counsel you. He starts with with faith in, in the promises of God. So then once people have a clean conscience, once people are relying on Christ's love and his gospel promises, now they are in a position to actually battle by faith. Okay, They're in a position to do number four here, our fourth encouragement, to begin identifying the lies of the old self to repudiate. I'm basing this off Ephesians 4.22, the put off the old man, the old edemic nature that's constantly deceived, and lying to you and churning up all kinds of desires. We've got to put him off. So that means if we're going to put him off, we've got to identify these lies and repudiate this old, old man. We have to teach people to do this. So when I'm interacting with somebody, I'm going to try to isolate the sin problem and all of its manifestations to one particular circumstance. And a circumstance that repeats is a best-case scenario. <laughs> Because you're going to get multiple options to, to work here. So I try to narrow the field down because people can struggle with all kinds of things and they want to talk about everything all at one time, but that's overwhelming. So let's reduce it down. Let's look at one area, one circumstance, and then I try to say, what are you saying to yourself in that circumstance when that happens? And you've got to be patient here because some people will be like, I'm not saying anything to myself. <laughs> That happens all the time. Yeah, you are. <laughs> and so, you know, it might take a couple times to kind of work through that. But there is something going on. You're talking to yourself. Your old man is operative. And your old man is telling you things. Your old woman, depending on your gender. All right? 
So be patient um, with folks. So I'm, I'm just going to give you some examples here of things that, as I've just sat down with folks, I've got a list here on, a, on the lust issue, um, a list I've made that is synonymous that I've heard people say when they're tempted. So people will say, I say to myself, my lust is private and it only affects me. It won't affect anyone else. Nobody knows about this or nobody needs to know about this. There won't be any consequences. No one's going to get pregnant. This will all be over when I get married. Marriage isn't even on the horizon for me, so I, I want to take this now. editing out here um, I can't believe I struggle so much in this area I, I must be a complete and utter failure to have these kinds of temptations day in and day out aren't I failing because I have to keep fighting like this when will this get easier I've been battling for days and it only seems harder I might as well give in because it surely isn't getting any easier and afterwards I can't go to God right now God is angry with me. I don't feel like he loves me right now. I've sinned so much in this area that I've failed beyond the point of no return. How can I know that I'm even repentant? The Lord has helped me begin to identify the lies and obey by faith, but I've just sinned again. And I'm demoralized and defeated. I've regressed. I hate sin. are lies I'm sorry and God's people are often enslaved to them so we have to help people we have to help them see that these are not true Because it leads to death. So I try to get them to articulate that, what I call the real. The thing that's playing in their mind. And it's really what they're saying to themselves. Because once we get it out, we can begin to evaluate it. And so that leads us to number five there. I told you this to go a little quicker. Identify the truth of Christ to believe in the moment of temptation. This is the mind renewal process. So as people get this out, work through what someone is telling themselves in the moment to help them evaluate whether or not it's true. And this is where a, um, a deep well of Scripture that's internalized, it works to your advantage because you're going to be able to recall it more quickly and again, truth is precious to you because that's what you're fighting with is the truth that you're going you're gonna to share with other people. And so it's not like you have to memorize the whole Bible to be effective. Uh, and again, some people are gifted here. Others aren't as gifted here. Don't let that discourage you. Um, if you think, I can't think that well on my feet, or I'm a new believer, and I don't know that much scripture. Like, that's all okay to just get it out on paper and say, I need to go think about this, or I need to go talk to someone else so they can help me think through this, so I can come give you some help. 
But the point here is that once it's out, we can begin to help people think through it. So let's take some of these examples here uh, that I just mentioned. My lust is private, and it only affects me. It doesn't affect anyone else. The truth is, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 6, that my lust actually defiles the church that I'm a part of. It also renders me ineffective in discipleship, according to 2 Timothy 2, 21-22. I'm unuseful to the Lord. This means that there is someone in the body, if I'm unuseful, that means there's someone in the body who is suffering because of my impurity and my lack of growth. Because I'm a broken arm. I'm acting like a diseased body part, according to Ephesians 4.16. So the reality is your private sexual sin dramatically affects other people, even as a single person. So you just see how the Bible just shines light right in there on that, on that lie that my lust is private and only affects me and it doesn't affect anyone else. And that's not even a talk about a future family, marriage. I'll give you one more example and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. When will this get easier? I've been battling for days and it only seems harder. I might as well give in because it surely isn't getting any easier. We often want truth. We often want growth to be easy and to change without having to die to ourselves and expend this kind of effort. But it helps tremendously when we understand that growth is often painful and it requires extensive spiritual energy. Your desires of deceit are not just going to roll over in defeat the first moment they experience resistance. Your flesh is strong, the lies run deep, and your sinful practices have been habitual. That means change comes slowly and with hard work. But take heart. God is the one who began the work in you and has promised to see it to completion. Philippians 1.6 I always need the Lord. John 15 And the battle is progressive. Ephesians 4 Glorification comes after this life and the battle is severe. Ephesians 6.10 So again, I mean, there's a lot more you could say to that particular lie. That's just an example. And that was... I haven't really edited any of this stuff. This all happened as I literally get my computer out, turn my screen around, and have these categories here. And have them write, I just write out everything I say. And then I come back with my, with my truth, and then we think through them, you know, each one of those. Because what I want you to have, and what we want our, our disciples to have, is truth. Not the whole Bible, but truth, particularized. I mean, we want them to have the whole Bible. But we want them to have truth that's particularized to their particular situation. So they can fight in that moment of temptation. And then finally, number six, what it would look like, I want to help them figure out what it would look like to trust Jesus and not what they feel, and then act on it in that moment of temptation. So land the plane here, but I will often say, okay, over here on the obedient side, I'll say, okay, this is what you say to yourself. No one sees, you know, uh, forget whatever that lie was. Um, it's private, not affecting anyone. Okay, it really does affect people, the scriptures say. This is really bad, um, and there's a lot of hope. You know, I could be a useful vessel if I deal with it. Um, what would my life look like in that particular moment? Remember? That particular moment that we talked about, not all of life, but that particular moment, what would it look like if I trusted Jesus and obeyed? If I really believed this, what would I do? And help them map it out. Help them take two or three, two or three things. 
and stay there until they obey. Because this is going to bleed into the rest of their life. This one little teeny tiny window is going to have implications for the rest of their life and how they think about battling sin. So we'll call it there. Um, I'm sure you got questions. Uh, I'll try to wrap all of this up next week. And, uh, but one thing I often think of, I'll leave you with this, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, which I often am in these scenarios, guess who is not overwhelmed? The Lord. Guess who brought this person to your house or the coffee shop? The Lord. Guess who put you with that person? The Lord. Guess what the Lord is doing? He is testing you. And he is saying, will you trust me with them as you try to help them? That gives me tremendous, tremendous hope. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we know the truth through your son and the truth sets us free. Um, Make us vessels of truth to other people. So we're motivated by love and compassion for them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.